page three, history's forgotten headlines, Ponzi scheme, the notorious namesake. This is history's forgotten headlines. Here, we revisit some of America's most notorious and shocking murders, scandals, and disasters that once made headlines across the world, and now they've not only fallen to back pages, but almost been completely forgotten. Everything you're about to hear involves some of the most powerful, wealthy, and beloved Americans of their time. Many are lives of triumph that end only in tragedy. These are history's forgotten headlines. Page 3, Ponzi Scheme, the Notorious Namesake. A Ponzi scheme is defined as an investment scam that pays existing investors out of money invested by new investors, giving the appearance of earnings and profits where there are none. You know the phrase, rob Peter to pay Paul? Yeah, that's it. A friend of mine told me that Ponzi schemes are as old as time. The cavemen were even saying, you give me two rocks today, two months from now, I'll give you four rocks. You don't actually need anything to start, except the promise that you're going to pay money. But many often wonder, or simply don't know, why is it called a Ponzi scheme? Well, it's all because of one man and one headline-making scheme. If you're going to tell the story of the man behind the Ponzi scheme, you have to include one man who literally wrote the book on Ponzi. And we were lucky enough to get him. Okay, how's that? That's great. Can you hear me okay? Yep, fine. Go ahead. That's author Donald Dunn. Just about everything I'm going to tell you uh, is based on a book that I wrote in 1975 which was about about 55 years after Ponzi had pulled off his big scheme. And uh, the book is called Ponzi, The Incredible True Story of the King of Financial Cons. Don agreed to speak with us over the phone from his home in Florida, a landline to be exact. Remember those? Yeah. Well, Don likely knows this story better than anyone alive today, and he says his fascination of these schemes all started with his love for magic. Back when I was about 12 or 13 years old, I started getting interested in doing magic tricks for people. And I guess I learned how easy it is to fool people. So you could say the man behind the Ponzi scheme pulled off the most notorious financial magic trick of all time. His name is Charles Ponzi. Charles Ponzi wasn't the first to run a massive financial scam, nor was he the last. But he carried out his crime with such flair and bravado, and that is what will keep his name connected to crime forever. His name is the only name of a criminal connected to a particular kind of crime. Uh, everyone knows what a Ponzi scheme is. Uh, I, I say that's unusual because uh, Lindbergh had a major kidnapping with the Lindbergh baby, but people don't refer to a kidnapping as a Lindbergh. Dillinger uh, robbed banks, uh, 
Bonnie and Clyde rob banks, but when somebody robs a bank, they don't refer to it as a, as a Bonnie and Clyde. But if, if there's a major scheme, a swindle, that's called a Ponzi. So we're going to retrace Ponzi's steps and look into how he did it and how he ended up. Let's start from the beginning. Charles Ponzi came to this country in the early 1900s as a poor immigrant from Italy, and he was penniless. To understand just how penniless Ponzi really was, this is where we need the help of Judge Mark Kantrowitz. He also wrote about Ponzi in his own book, Old Whiskey and Young Women, American True Crime, Tales of Murder, Sex, and Scandal. Carlo Pietro Giovanni Guillermo Tibaldo Ponzi, who was born March 3rd, 1882. And he uh, was born in Italy, obviously, the only son of, 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 of his parents, and a, a very bright young man with a lot of, uh, with a lot of uh, potential. They sent him off to the University of Rome, and he quickly gambled away his tuition and <laughs> lasted there about a year. And mom and dad said, well, maybe we should send him to America, where the streets align with gold. And Ponzi heard that, said, that's great. They gave him money. To, to make the uh, to make the voyage and and to stay here for a while, and he quickly lost just about all the money gambling on the boat over. Ponzi came to America in 1903 through Boston. He was later quoted saying, "I landed in this country with two dollars and fifty cents in cash, and one million dollars in hopes. And those hopes never left me." Ponzi then found his way to Canada. Easy to say, it was a rough start. He's working at a bank in uh, Canada, and the bank is, you know, doing a little shady stuff. And he probably learned it, whether he engaged in it or not, who knows. And he kind of got caught up in it and does a short prison term. And then he's coming to America, and he's with some Italian immigrants, and they accuse him of smuggling the immigrants into America unlawfully. Whether that's true or not, who knows. He figures he's going to get a a $50 fine. He winds up getting a jail sentence in Atlanta. Whether that's true or not, Mark brings up a good point. Listen to how Don describes Ponzi's dealings. Ponzi had learned to speak English, so he was working as uh, an interpreter and bringing in the illegal immigrants. Really, in regards to Ponzi's life before the spotlight, we don't know too much about him. The reason? We really only have his account. Again, He's only known because he was really good at cheating. Very little is known about his early life. What what we do know about Ponzi is that he was a consistent liar. So anything that was was brought out about you know his young young years in in Italy uh, may may not be true. He made up his his background. And uh, he, he could he could say that he had degrees in different areas, but uh, whether whether or not he actually did, uh, he obviously had a golden a golden tongue. But there is one story that appears to be true from Ponzi's early years: a moment of kindness from the criminal. It happened while he was bouncing around parts of the U.S. after his second prison sentence. When he's in his travels, there's some explosion. A nurse is seriously injured. She needs a skin graft. He gets up like 
100 inches of his skin and winds up staying himself in the hospital for three months. And 100 inches on a man who's only 5 feet 2 inches tall is a lot. Yes, Ponzi was a small man. Anyway, Ponzi ends up finding his way back to Boston, and now is when we can cue the upbeat music, because it's about to get good. The year is 1917. He decides he's going to go to the uh, Boston Pops with his landlady. And at the end of uh, the Pops, they walk across the street. They're waiting at the Boylston Street Green Line uh, stop. And then in his words, well, he spots Rose Marie Gineco, who's like him from Italy, uh, 4'11", so he's taller than she is. She has this lustrous brown hair. And he said to her, he said, of her, time, space, the world, and everything else around me, except for that girl, had ceased to exist. It's kind of like that scene. You ever see the, the West Side Story? So the first time Tony and Maria spot each other on the dance floor, and everything else ceases to be, basically, except Tony and Maria as they come together. And, you know, everything else is very cloudy. And that's, and that's, this is long before West Side Story. Now that Ponzi has met the love of his life, they marry within about a year. And despite having his bride, he still doesn't really have any money. Or at least he doesn't have as much money as what he thought he should. So Ponzi's plan starts to take shape in 1918. Ponzi has to say, hey, I'm a married guy now. I may start having a family. He never did, sadly. Uh, But now, you know, it's for Rose. I got to do something for Rose. I'm living in poverty, but she shouldn't have to live in poverty. And I don't want to live in poverty. poverty." And then he comes up, he hatches his scheme. And it was through international postal coupons. You You know, today we take things for granted. You put a letter in the mailbox put a stamp on it, it goes somewhere. You want to send a letter to Italy, you want to send a letter to wherever, you put the appropriate stamps on and it goes to where. You know, that wasn't the case at all times. And back in the early 1900s, it was very bifurcated and, you know, postal rates are different from here than there than there. So when Ponzi said, I'll go into some country and I'll buy cheap stamps basically and then I'll go to another country where the stamps are more expensive and then I'll, I'll, I'll sell them, you know, and I'll make a profit. But that was just the front for Ponzi's business. He even took from his wife to make his business appear even more legitimate. She was 19 and he was in his 30s when they got married. He, he wormed his way into the, the family And one story is that she had some jewelry that he pawned to get the money to start uh, to to rent an office so he could set up his uh, securities investment scheme, which is what he was calling himself. And to anyone familiar with Boston, Ponzi's old office sits right next door to the old city hall on School Street and right above what is now a Starbucks, of course. So now it's 1919, and Ponzi has an office and a front. Now he just has to use his gift of gab to make that golden promise. His scheme was based on simply a promise that if you gave him your money in six months' time, he would give it back to you double or triple. He he did it with such bravado and 
in a day when there was no television sets. He did it all by word of mouth, simply promising, I will give you a 100% return on your money. And people, without any any uh, suspicions, said, all right, that sounds good. Here's my money. And it just, uh, his scheme grew by word of mouth. And it grew quickly. Before you know it, people are rushing to Ponzi, just like they rushed to Bernie Madoff. You know, they, you know, Bernie, please take my money. You know, you're so brilliant. You know, you're giving these unheard of returns, you know, so please take my money. So Ponzi, please take my money. So like any Ponzi type of scheme, you know, you get all this money and then, and then you keep getting money and then the new money you get helps pay off the old debt. So after a 90 days, someone comes and says, okay, Ponzi, I gave you $100. You owe me $140. Now, a lot of people said, let it ride. You know, take the $140 and just reinvest it. Okay. In fact, there's no $140. That's a figment of everybody's imagination. So some people, though, took the money. They took the $140. So that money, that $140, came from subsequent investors. So the next person is, you know, comes in the door, here, take my money. Ponzi takes their $100 and uses that $100 to pay off, you know, the earlier investors. You know, but people aren't giving them $100, or people are giving them $100. A lot of people are giving them a lot of money. Ponzi would walk in every morning uh, dressed like, like a prince, swinging a, a gold-headed cane, and so people started lining up to give him their money. And the Boston paper, uh, the post, uh, editor of the Post, said, let's do a story about him. And they actually did a story saying, Charles Ponzi, who has something called the Security Exchange Company, is doubling money. I mean, that, that, was the, that was the first story that read about him. Uh, there was nothing in the story saying, you know, it could be a scheme. <laughs> they just said, he's double your money. And that started people lining up e- even more. That meant six months later, he had taken in about $3 million. But it wasn't just the money that made Ponzi well known. Besides the fancy suits and the gold-headed cane, Ponzi also bought a mansion in a Boston suburb with air conditioning and a heated swimming pool. Again, this is the early 1900s. And it was also reported that at his peak, Ponzi was making about $250,000 a day. He hired himself a press agent, uh, a press agent uh, who announced that Charles Ponzi would be glad to speak in front of various organizations of uh, bankers and uh, industrialists, investors. Uh, he would be glad to speak about what uh, the system that he had found to double people's money, and he he was not he was not hiding. Uh, most people who run a Ponzi scheme have a basic idea that they will start small, the money will come in, they will package up that money, and they will take off somewhere, uh, and this, the scheme will end with them having disappeared. Uh, now, Ponzi, because he was so confident in his own abilities to get out of everything, he 
decided not to take off the investments that came in. He did not hide away in a trunk. He went down to the local banks in Boston, and he put all his money in different banks. And uh, he had them give him a certificate of deposit. So he was walking around with his with his gold-headed cane. He uh, hired a very expensive limousine. And at any time, he could reach into his pocket and pull out a piece of paper and say, I have a million dollars on deposit in the local bank. Uh, why should I hide? Um, this, this is, it's all part of the ego uh, that uh, certain, certain people have. And I'm sure that they have the feeling that with this kind of money at my disposal, I can hire the greatest lawyers in the world. So nothing is ever going to happen to me. Believe it or not, this scheme only goes on for less than a year, about December 1919 to June 1920. And then one day, the police come to visit Ponzi at his office. So the police figure, we better look into it. Although no one's complaining, you know, we should look into it. So a couple, couple of police officers go to speak to Ponzi, and they become investors at the conclusion of speaking with Ponzi. So everybody's, you know, happy with Ponzi. And you thought that was going to be his fall. and eh, not so fast. This is Charles Ponzi we're talking about here. The very newspaper that had already done a feature on the overnight success kept asking questions and kept digging. The Boston Post starts doing a newspaper article about it, and then they come to the conclusion the numbers don't add up. You know, if you invest $140 basically on foreign stamps, you know, that's not going to grow 40% in 90 days or however many days. So the Boston Post just ran the math and said it's just a house of cards. And then they publish that, and then it hits the fan, as they say. And then all of a sudden, there's a rush on poor Mr. Ponzi to, uh, you know, Ponzi, we want our money, you know, and no one's giving Ponzi money now. They just want all want their money. And as soon as the source of the funds is cut off, that's, that's like tur- turning off a, f- a fountain. Uh, as soon as no more money is coming in, then you can't afford to pay back those that you have promised. People literally were lining up. You know, they're lining up the stairs. There were so many people. The line went from the street up five floors to, to Ponzi's office there, then out, and then down the street, and then down that alleyway. So Ponzi, being the guy, made sure that women and pregnant women got to the front of the line. He would go out and give them refreshments. You know, it's just a salesman to the end. In return for their investments, all people got was a piece of paper saying, you know, a, a, a promissory note. Uh, and it said, I promise on June 10th, I will pay you back $200. Well, if you can, if you give somebody that kind of a note and you can't give them the $200, uh, that, that's against the law. We had the run on Ponzi, if you will, and then Ponzi obviously could not, you know, he owed 
you know, a lot of money, and he couldn't make do. And then before you know it, Ponzi's uh, being charged both state and federally for his crimes. The government said to Ponzi that he had been using the mail to defraud people. Charged with 86 counts of mail fraud, to be exact. Remember that part when Don mentions Ponzi felt he was so rich he could buy the best attorneys? Well, Ponzi decided to represent himself. When you have $3 million in the bank, it's easy to, easy to, to find lawyers that will represent you. But if, if you don't want to give them any of that $3 million, and as they say, he, he was interested in, in getting the money and keeping it. The arrogance is such that, you know, I know what I'm doing. I, I, will, I will get out of this one way or another. That wasn't the case. Ponzi was eventually found guilty on both his federal and state charges. He served two separate prison sentences. Then Ponzi found himself out of prison for an appeal. And if you think he decided to lay low, well, you're wrong. And he decides, and it's a little cold in Boston, I've had my fill of Boston, let me go down to Florida. And here's what he finds in Florida, this land speculation. He actually printed up some certificates, uh, named the company after his wife, and was trying to sell these shares in swampland. The problem was, Ponzi was selling the swampland as pristine land, and that is illegal. Another fraud. So Ponzi is convicted once again, only this time he's deported back to Italy. He wasn't heard from for years, essentially disappearing. But then he suddenly resurfaced, and the once king of financial crimes had fallen far from his throne. He ended up going to uh, South America, uh, working for the, the airline. And then he kind of disappears for a while until he... He surfaces, uh, he was very sick, and he was in a charity ward at a hospital. And that, that's where he passed away, supposedly still dreaming of going back to America and getting together with his wife, Rose. But uh, he died in, in a charity ward. I think there was like $67 left in his account that they used uh, for his funeral. As for Rose, the love of his life, well, it turns out, as far as we know, Don is the only person to ever interview the former wife of Charles Ponzi. I say former, because while she did stick with him through all his legal troubles and prison time, she finally divorced him when he was deported. And remember when Ponzi described a love story between the two? Sadly, that didn't seem to be a mutual feeling in the end. When Don spoke to Rose, she was in her 70s, and she, too, appeared to have been played by Ponzi. Everybody was sure that Ponzi had money hidden away and had taken care of Rose, his wife. Uh, so when I started researching the story, I found out that Rose was living in Florida and that she was living near the state where Al Capone had lived. So I assumed that Rose also had 
some kind of an estate there, and she must secretly have had this money. So when I went down, of course, to Florida, uh, I found out that Palm Island in 1920 was, of course, very exclusive. These days, it's built up like any other suburb, and I found out that Rose and her husband actually were living in a small apartment uh, built over a garage. Rose's husband at the time was running the concession stand at a dog racing track. Well, I was, you know, I was very surprised. She, she was not living in luxury like a millionaire's wife would. They, they were very ordinary middle-class people. When I interviewed her later on, she said that all that he left her with was his 80-year-old mother to take care of. So uh, she, she was she was not happy. Uh, his wife was not happy. Uh, he, he wrote her, Ponzi wrote her letters from jail telling how much he loved her and how he looked forward to getting out of jail and making everything right. But uh, I'm not sure that she believes him anymore. I, I think that uh, as a young 19-year-old woman, maybe she'd been swept off her feet by the fact that you know this this penniless guy one day shows up with a a limousine and wants to take her on airplane rides. So I think you know she she was probably swept off her feet. Don also tells me that he has sold the rights to his book for it to be made into a movie. But so far, no such movie. And if you're curious, Don himself has made a lot of money off his book. After working on on the book for a couple of years, uh, I have decided that you get a lot richer if you run a Ponzi scheme than if you write a book about it. Also, Ponzi did write a book about himself that you can actually find online. Its title, The Rise of Mr. Ponzi, the autobiography of a financial genius. And it, of course, talks about his entire life. Now, how much of it is true, nobody knows. I suppose we'll never know. And we'll leave you with that. I'm Justin Doherty. While the headlines may be forgotten, just don't forget about us. Music